Thank you, Lord, for the great plan that you've been working out in all of history. Thank you that you have relentlessly been working to bring a people to yourself, a people who will be your treasured possession. And thank you, Lord, for the enormity of what happened at Sinai uh, and in the, the Mosaic Covenant. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to that today and that you would make us wise through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this week, if you're just joining us, is, is our fifth in our kind of whirlwind 13-week series passing through the mountaintop moments of the Bible. I call it a whirlwind, A, because 13 weeks for the whole Bible is pretty quick, and uh, B, because our last series went for two years. Um, but as in this series, we're seeking to see the big picture of the Bible and where we fit into that. And today's passage is perhaps the one that's best suited to our series title, The Peaks, uh, because today's thing actually happens on a literal mountaintop. Uh, and, and a few of the things in this series do, but perhaps none more noteworthily than this, Sinai. And this is a big moment in the history of salvation that we're looking at. Uh, at Sinai, God establishes a covenant not with an individual nor with an individual family, but with a nation that admittedly come from one family. We're going to uh, call it what most people call it, I'll just say this up front, which is uh, the Mosaic Covenant. All that means is the covenant that came through Moses. Um, but in the, in the period of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the covenant under which Israel lived and established as an established nation, uh, many of the promises made to Abraham that we saw a couple of weeks back in, in Genesis 12, 15 and 17 saw at least a partial fulfillment. God has promised that the descendants of Abraham would be numerous. And although by this point they're not nearly as numerous as the stars of the sky or the dust of the earth, we now have a nation of like a million people from a guy who, you know, late into his you know, 80s or even coming towards 90, didn't have any kids or just had the one kid in the end. God had promised a land to the descendants of Abraham, and on the basis of obedience to this covenant, they're going to receive a land. Hello, Charlie. And yet at the same time, the period of Israel and the Mosaic law actually falls significantly short of fulfilling the full expectations of the promises made to Abraham. Because of disobedience, Israel would never actually occupy the full land that was promised to them. Moreover, God's promise to Abraham... <laughs> hey, Dad, do you want to do me some crowd, crowd control here? Thanks. God's promise to Abraham had gone beyond the promise of a nation, you might recall. God had said that kings and nations would come from him and that in him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And yet in the Old Testament nation of Israel, we, we see a limited blessing which only ever reaches to the edges of the borders of Israel. And, the, and the, the few times that it looks like that's going to change, that it looks like Israel is going to become a blessing to other nations and to other peoples, it actually ends up running the other way. Uh, we see this particularly in the case of Solomon, who we might talk a little bit more about another week, but uh, Israel becomes contaminated by the nations around rather than becoming a blessing to the families of the earth. All of that to say... All of that to say, this is a significant moment of fulfilment that we see at Sinai and in the people of Israel. But it, it, it's not the ultimate moment of fulfilment of the promises and of God's purposes for his people. 
So that complicates things a little bit as we come to reading this. Uh, to further complicate things, we have us. Uh, Christians today often reach the law in the Old Testament and we struggle with it. We struggle to read it. Uh, it sometimes drags. It sometimes seems quite foreign to us, if we're honest. It probably most times seems quite foreign to us. Uh, its standards often seem over harsh compared to what we used to, or even a bit bizarre. You know, think prohibitions on mixed fabrics and mildew. Um, moreover, we struggle to understand how it relates to us as people today. What point is there in reading the Old Testament law when we are not Old Testament Israel? We're not under that covenant anymore. And, and as a result, we often approach the law given to Israel, uh, the covenant of Sinai, with the, the mentality that this is a, a bit of a slog that I should probably do because I'm a Christian, you know, because we read the Bible. Or, or worse still, we just end up not reading it at all. Uh, we just focus elsewhere, you know. Maybe we read the, the creation narrative and the Abraham and stuff and we get up to the plagues because they're good and fun, but then we get to the law and we go, well, maybe I'll skip to even the, just the New Testament at this point. Um, it's a terrible mistake when we do that because there, there are riches to be had here for Christians today. So without going any further, let me lay out what we're going to do today. This one's probably going to be a little bit different to the other sermons in this series. I mean, hopefully they will be a bit different to each other. Um, but ultimately, we're going to go about today answering two critical questions, which will shed some light on this difficult piece of scripture, uh, placing it in the big picture of the Bible, and therefore showing us how to relate to it as the people of God today. Uh, and these are the two questions. First... What was the purpose and the achievement of the Mosaic Covenant? What did it set out to do and what did it do? And we'll give a little what was it in there as well. Second, how do we read the law of the Mosaic Covenant today? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. No, no, nothing up my sleeve here, no tricks. It should be self-evident though that we are going to skim the surface of these questions. Uh, we are giving one sermon uh, to something that takes up the entirety of a few of the larger books of the Bible. Uh, and I hope that you'll take the chance. I, I hope that after this sermon, you'll feel equipped to go and read these parts of the Bible for yourself and that you'll have a, you know, get, start digging into them even this week. You know, into Exodus 20 to 40, into the book of Leviticus, into the book of Deuteronomy, and, and see how they speak into your life. Because although they're not parts of the Bible that will always have an easy one-for-one -one comparison for today and our lives, they are still a part of God's word intended to teach us and grow us in the likeness of our Saviour Jesus. And I hope today that, amongst other things, you'll get a glimpse of how that works. So... First, what was the purpose of the achievement of the Mosaic Covenant? And before we answer that question, here's the question underneath the question. Uh, what was the Mosaic Covenant? What is it? What are we talking about? Because, because you might have just blown into church today and, and you, know, you might not do a regular reading of the Old Testament or, or be a regular church goer, uh, and you might just be getting to this point in the sermon being like, what on earth have I walked into? Mosaic what now? Uh, so briefly, the Mosaic Covenant was an established relationship between God and the people of Israel, which laid out laws for how the people and the nation would live 
and it promised blessing as a reward for obedience and punishment and the loss of blessing in response to disobedience. It was a conditional yet gracious arrangement under which the people could access the blessings of God through obedience, namely receiving the land that was promised, living in peace and prosperity and living in a limited way with God in their presence. But similarly, the people would be punished and would lose those blessings for disobedience. And the bulk of this covenant consists, therefore, of law, laws, the rules and the regulations by which Israel needed to live if they wanted to be under the blessing of God. So let's, let's return then to our main question, what was the purpose of it? What did it achieve? And I want to point you toward three answers to that question. Uh, first, the law was intended to achieve a closeness with God on the basis of his saving work and of Israel's obedience. And it's worth saying, this isn't, when we say this is a conditional covenant, it's not an arrangement in which God demands that Israel does 95% of the work and he will let them come to him. Immediately before this, uh, as Eric uh, looked at for us last week, uh, God has moved heaven and earth in a very near literal way to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt and into this special relationship with him. And that will be the continuing pattern that will come up as they trust God, he will do the work, he will do the heavy lifting. But then even though this covenant is gracious and it involves a great deal of saving grace from God, it's also conditional quite explicitly. And we see that in the passage from this morning, Exodus 19, 4-5, reminds the people first of God's saving work, bringing them out of Egypt, but then states that if they will obey, then they will be God's treasured possession from all the peoples a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But do you see, even though it has conditions, this covenant is intended to bring them into a relationship with God in a special way. And it's special because thus far in the narrative of the Bible, we haven't seen anything like this. God, has, God is relating to a nation, and in, as yet that hasn't happened He's creating the conditions by which not just a person or a family, like we said, uh, can know him, but by which a people can. And it's new in the narrative. And we see that quite clearly in, in the immediate context of Exodus. It's really clear what's happening here, that God is creating this special relationship. God has been leading the people through the wilderness and, and, and he has been with them visibly in a pillar of fire and a pillar of a cloud. And now they are close to his very presence at Mount Sinai. This is a special thing that others had not had. And in chapter 24, not just Moses will go up on the mountain, but Moses and three other leaders and 70 of the elders will go up on the mountain and they will see, though from a distance, the presence of God there. And it's not just a thing that happens at Sinai and then, and then God's distant from them, but rather Sinai is setting up the conditions by which this can be an ongoing relationship. And the most critical way in which that happens is through a thing called the tabernacle, uh, which would eventually be replaced with a thing called the temple that did the same purpose. The tabernacle slash temple are a big deal. God's people are living in tents in the wilderness and God comes to them and he says, make me a tent. And, and 
of the remaining chapters of Exodus, after Exodus 19, of the remaining 20, 13 of them are either about how they are to make this tent or about them making the tent. And if you boil it down, the tabernacle is quite simply a dwelling place. In fact, that's literally what tabernacle means. It is a place where God promises that his presence will dwell in a special way among his people, Israel. And so much of the law centers on how this whole special relationship is made possible. How are people who are still sinners, because they were, can still live in the presence of the holy God. And so we have all of these blood offerings that happen in the Old Testament. All of this uh, tabernacle apparatus, the basins and the altars and things and, and the lamps and, and all intended to make it possible for the people to live in this special way with the presence of God among them. And before we go on to the second thing that the law achieves, do you see what's happening here in a kind of zooming out, looking at the big picture of the Bible way? Do you remember? Do you remember way back at the start, I said in, in, in kind of our second sermon of this series, I said, um, sorry, I jumped way ahead in my sermon there because my brain died. Um, do you remember that I said at the start of this sermon that this covenant, uh, you know, we see some of the promises to Abraham fulfilled, but, it, but it's not just the promises to Abraham that are being fulfilled, but the purposes of creation are coming back into view here. You might recall back in the second week of this series, we said to look out for two patterns that come up again and again and again. The first one was moments of judgment mixed with mercy and promise, judgment and salvation operating together, which you would have noticed last week if you were looking closely at the, at the Passover when God judges the Egyptians and delivers his people. But then there's that second pattern the story of creation and fall, we will see running on an almost repeat cycle, but a progressing repeat cycle. Especially here, we see an echo of creation happening. At creation, God dwelled with his people in his special place, the garden, under his rule and under his blessing. And at Sinai, God establishes a covenant by which he will dwell in a limited way with his people, Israel, his, in his special place, the promised land, under his rule and his blessing. But sadly, that does lead us to the second thing that the Mosaic Covenant achieves. Uh, so we've, we've seen that it was intended to achieve a special closeness with God on the basis of obedience, but kind of inversely, conversely, uh, it actually also maintains very intentionally and very clearly a distance between the people and God on the basis of their sin. And this too is really clear at the mountain and ongoing. At the mountain, 90% of the time, more than 90% of the time, Moses alone was allowed to come up and to meet with God. Just, just a little bit further down chapter 19 than our reading today, in verses 12 and 13, God commands Moses to be really clear with the people, don't touch the mountain. Not the bit where God is, way up at the top. Don't touch even the foot of the mountain. If someone touches the mountain, they die. They are to be put to death. And if anyone does run up the mountain and come into the presence of God, they will die in the presence of God. And then in chapter 24, on the occasion that we mentioned before, which was a huge thing that the elders and the leaders came and they saw God from a distance, it was from a distance. Only Moses was allowed to come close to God in that moment. 
And just like the, the closeness, the distance is this pattern that is literally woven into the law. And just like the, the tabernacle and the temple allowed God to dwell among the people, the tabernacle slash temple also enforced the separation of God from the people. Sacrifices and ritual cleansing in large ways were required just to enter. And the tabernacle came in, in layers of proximity. Um, you, can, you can look up a, a map of the inner workings of the tabernacle. It's worth, worth doing. It has these different layers of holy places becoming more and more so. Uh, and, and the further in you went, the less people could come in after doing more purification, ritual cleansing, until you got to the very inner room called the, the most holy place or the holy of holies, the room in which the Ark of the Covenant was going to be kept and God's presence would remain in a special way and which one person alone, the high priest, would be able to enter once every year. And Exodus 26 gives us this critical little detail um, that, that really nails the message home. Verse 1 of Exodus 26 tells us that the curtains, that is the walls of the tent, right? The, the curtains that separate the different sections and, and put around the outside, the curtains that separated the layers had to have cherubim woven into them. Now, cherubim, just in case you're wondering, are not adorable little baby things with nappies and, and, and bows. Um, that's Greek mythology. They're probably not even properly that. Uh, the Bible envisages them as terrifying angel warriors. Verse 31 of chapter 26 tells us specifically about the big curtain, the thick curtain that was in front of the Holy of Holies, that most holy place, and it had cherubim woven into it. And you might say, so what? What's so significant about cherubim on curtains? Sounds like nice decor, but, you know. And it's significant because cherubim don't come up an awful lot in the Bible. Um, in fact, if you, if you search for the word cherubim in the Old Testament, you'll find it in, in three broad places. First, you'll find it in, in the end of the Old Testament, in the prophets as they describe the, the throne room of God, and the cherubim are those that guard the presence of God. Uh, the second, and the vast majority of these references, relate to the temple and the tabernacle like these, um, both to these curtains and to a bunch of other uses of, of cherubim imagery in the temple and the tabernacle. And then there's one other place, one single verse other place that is the reason why they are in the tabernacle and in the temple. And that, that is Genesis 3.24. When it says, you know, Genesis 3, by the way, the fall. And it says that God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God sets up his special presence among his people and then he places the same guard outside it on the curtain to remind them this is not a place for you to enter. Your sin keeps you out. And that brings us to the third purpose of the law of Sinai and the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant points forward to something more. The Mosaic Covenant builds expectation that God does intend to dwell with his people. He does intend to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, but it also does not achieve those ends, nor was it intended to. 
The Mosaic Covenant points forward simultaneously to a better covenant keeper and to a better covenant. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the law perfectly. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. He was the obedient Israelite that the old covenant called for, but never had. But rather than living under the perfect blessings of God, promised in the old covenant, Jesus became a better sacrifice for sin. In his obedience, he carried the curses. He carried the punishments so that we could have the blessing. The mosaic sacrifices were offered year in, year out, and were, in the end, ineffective, because an animal's blood cannot atone for a person's sin. But before he died, Jesus took a cup, as we remembered before, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant that would be without conditions, where faith and only faith in the finished work of Jesus is the only determining factor of a person's relationship with God. This is a theme that we'll see escalate uh, we get, when we get to our week on the prophets and we look at the, the servant songs of Isaiah. Jesus is ultimately the purpose of the law. You summarise the law's intention in one word, it was Jesus. Of course, if you summarise creation's intention in one word, that would also be my word for it. But considering that fact, we now have our other big question that's really important um, that we must address. How do we read this law today then? And our relationship with it is not perfectly simple, but it is deeply worthwhile. A great deal of the New Testament, especially the book of, of Galatians, is written to establish that those who are in Christ are no longer under the law. How we are saved, how we come into the blessings of God, how we remain in the blessings of God, and keep our relationship with him is no longer determined by law-keeping, either for Jew or for Gentile. Uh, the New Testament's very clear about that. But by Christ's finished work in us, that is the only thing. But then it would be uh, patently wrong to say that the law is now useless. That because we are saved by Jesus, we do not need the Old Testament anymore. The New Testament says about the Old Testament that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That's written by Paul at a time when the only scripture they had was Old Testament scripture. If we can get our heads around how the Old Covenant relates to us, then it is still of great value to us and is useful for our growth as the people of God. And I want to bring us three quick answers, well, quickish. I want to bring us three answers to the question, placing most of the remainder of our time in the final one. Because I believe it will give us tools to actually go and to read and to grow, to apply the law in our lives appropriately. So first, how do we read the law? We read the law to point out for us the impossibility of living with God under his blessings by our own effort. The law can be broken down into, into three parts. We'll look at this a bit more in a sec. Um, but although there is some blurring between them, this isn't like a neat, there's not a book of this one and a book of that one and a book of that one. Uh, but you have moral laws, uh, which are 
the, the ones that we, like the ones we find in the Ten Commandments, right? The ones like do not murder, do not steal, uh, do not commit adultery. Um, there's a lot more than that, by the way. Uh, but then you have ceremonial law. And so ceremonial law is things like, uh, in fact, it, it, it centered on the sacrificial system and the temple and the tabernacle system, but also had a lot of laws around ritual cleanness. Uh, and then you have civil laws, uh, which specifically governed how the nation of Israel was to operate at a civil level. And we'll get uh, to how those three relate to us in a minute, uh, but the full weight of all of these laws should lead us to realise that it's impossible for sinful people to fully uphold the law, fully keep the moral code, the ceremonial code, and the civil code. And, and remember, this is a conditional covenant that requires obedience for blessing. In fact, the easiest way to see how impossible it is to come under the blessings of God and to live with him through law-keeping is to look at the first law and at the summary law. We don't have to go further than that. The first law, uh, by which I mean the, you know, the first one stated, comes to us in Exodus chapter 20, is the first of the Ten Commandments. And it's a law that everyone, without exception except aside from Jesus, has broken. With the only exception of Jesus. The first law says, you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing is to take a higher place of worship in the lives of God's People. This isn't just excluding worshipping carved images. Uh, it's a prohibition on anything coming before God. And the summary law, which is what I'm calling it, is very similar. When a lawyer asked Jesus what the greatest law was, he pointed to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. No one but Jesus has loved God with everything and put him first all of the time. No one but Jesus can be justified by the law. No one but Jesus can live with God under his blessing by keeping the rules. And reading the law should reveal that to us. And it should rebuke us when we think that we're doing pretty well and that we can maintain the relationship with God and our own esteem. No, it has to be grace. Under the law, it is impossible. And if you're not convinced, go, have a read. <laughs> read the law, see how you think you'd stack up. And then read the rest of the Old Testament and see how millions of Israelites stacked up over hundreds and hundreds of years. And if you still think, yeah, but I think I'd do it differently, then just, just be willing to acknowledge that the first sin that's going to have to come out is pride. But then that brings us to the, the second answer to our question of how we read the law. We read the law to point us toward the possibility of living with God under his blessings in Christ. The impossibility of the law should point us toward the need for the perfect saviour. But it's not, it's not just that. It's not just that, that, oh, it's so hard, so we need something better. It's, it's that actually the law um, is filled with patterns. It's filled with images. It's filled with shadows that point us forward to Jesus. Hebrews 10, which, which Eric really helpfully brought out for us last week, which I'm going to do again, it points out that the law was always a shadow of what was to come. It says, for since the law was but has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. 
it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But then verse 10 says, we have been sanctified, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The law presents in shadows what we see fully in Jesus. But that means that as we read the law, as we read about the sacrificial system and about the ceremonial requirements of the law and the spotlessness of the sacrificial offerings and so many other things, it enhances our understanding of what happened when our Saviour came. It enhances our understanding of who he is and what he did. Because it exists to point to him. As we read about the tabernacle and understand the imagery of separation and of closeness there, we learn about God's intention to dwell among his people, which would become reality in Jesus, who was God with us. And then because of Jesus, through the Spirit, who is God in us. And there are so many ways that the law foreshadows what was to come in Jesus. But then finally, we should read the law not to justify us, not to gain God's blessing, but to inform how we live as the people who have God in us already, under his established blessing and love. And I want to be really clear about it. What I'm going to say here, the law cannot save you. I think I've said it already. It never could. And likewise, for a person who is justified by Jesus, saved by the perfect sacrifice that he made, a break from the law will never be enough to separate you from God. Because there is grace in Jesus for forgiveness. But because the law represents God's standards as fulfilled in Jesus, it still informs how we're to live as the people of the Saviour today. As people who are meant to be like him. And here's a critical part of the puzzle, which I kind of alluded to before. We mentioned those three parts of the law. Because it's fulfilled in Jesus in different ways, different parts of the law apply to us in different ways. And this is where, yeah, we return to those three things. The moral laws are fulfilled in Jesus in that he kept them fully. He was morally perfect. But as the, as the people who continue in his image, disciples of Jesus... We too are called to be a moral people. We're not called to cast aside morality, but rather to be like him. And so as we read the law and see moral commands, do not rape, do not murder, care for the widow and for the poor, we don't see them as the way that we are saved, but we see their application as a part of how saved people live. The ceremonial laws, which, which provided for the, the ceremonial cleanness of the people, specifically centering on the sacrificial system, they are fulfilled in Jesus because he is our great sacrifice. He has superseded them. Uh, we read it in Hebrews just before that their, he, their sacrifices year in, year out could not cleanse us from sin, but we have been made holy by the body of Jesus. The old sacrifices have been replaced by one perfect sacrifice. We are not bound by them anymore, which is great because I didn't have to kill a sheep today. Some of you guys might have. Not for this purpose, though.
So the ceremonial law, its primary purpose is to point us to Jesus because it is fulfilled in Jesus and we are, we are allowed to eat bacon, hallelujah. But, but see, it's still good. It's still value. It still points us to him and informs us about him. And then you have the civil law. And the civil law is perhaps the most challenging area of the law. Um, it's not binding on us because uh, it governed the nation of Israel in the lead up to the Saviour. But now, as the people of the Saviour, we are not a national body. Christianity isn't a national institution. We are no longer that. Um, but at the same time, as we read the civil laws of Israel, and some of them are very challenging, um, they can inform, though, how we think nations should operate. They can inform our relationships in society. And they can inform our understanding of who our God is and what his attitudes toward people are like. His definitions of right and wrong. But they're not binding on us, do you hear me? And a word of caution here, as you read, note the difference between what is allowed for and what is commanded for Israel. Perhaps the most obvious and critical area of this is, is you know, you step into uh, Exodus 21 uh, and it lays out a bunch of conditions for how slaves are to be kept. The, the Old Testament does not anywhere command slavery, but rather in a world where slavery was universal and, and very different to what we think of when we think of slavery, by the by, it, it creates a system in which this class of people are to be considered humans, are to be given rights and not just possessions. All of this to say, please, please, if you're a Christian, read the law of the Old Testament. It's of great value to us. If we study it, it will make us wise. It will show us our need of a saviour. It will point us toward the glorious work of our saviour. And it will help us in leading us to walk as the transformed people of our saviour. And on that note, I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to hand back over to the musos. Lord, um, I want to acknowledge on behalf of anyone who think, is thinking it here, um, and, and on my own behalf, there are so many things in your law that seem foreign to us, that seem difficult, that seem unusual. Um, and yet, Lord, we know that as we look into it, we see, we come to know the character of our God more. And we come to know our need of the Saviour more. And we come to know our Saviour more. So Lord, please lead us to be a people who love your whole word, who embrace the whole counsel of God, and who are grown to be like Jesus in it. And Lord, lead us to be a people um, who know our place in it as well. Thank you, Lord, that that you have called your people in all ages to be your treasured possession. And thank you, Lord, that although 
you came and dwelled among the people of Israel in the tabernacle and the temple. You have now come to us, Jesus. You came down, the presence of God among us. And your spirit now dwells in us. And as First Peter says, we are being built into a, a holy dwelling. Help us to know where we are in relation to you, Lord, treasured and precious. Help us to live there and to grow under your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.